Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look towards the heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. For a second there, I didn't know if my uh, mic was working, so I almost had to, to shout. Let it all out. All right. I just want to say before I get started here that I love that you guys are praying for missionaries' kids. That was Pastor Curtis and Pastor Alyssa, a very good idea. Um, friend of mine, Timothy Eckert, one of the missionaries we support here, I remember when he was in Indonesia, and he had heard um, some sound outside his house, and there was some, some uh, young men out there, and they were stealing from one of his trees, and he yelled at them, and one of them blindsided him with a weapon, and he was in the hospital for a number of days. And I always thought about how terrified that, terrifying that must be for his kids, to be in a foreign nation. You're, you're away from family, grandma, grandpa, aunts and uncles, and your dad, you don't know what's happening with your dad. So I really appreciate you guys are doing that. In this chapter right here, um, it is where Abraham will be called the man of faith. So I ask you, what is faith? You, might, uh, you ask that question to 100 people, they might have 100 different answers. Our church's name is Faith. One of our kids here's name is Faith. There's 100 different ways people might describe what faith is. For instance, um, Voltaire said that faith to find my notes where I've got Voltaire, Voltaire's, that faith consists in believing when it is beyond reason to believe. The atheist, Christian, the atheist Richard Dawkins was having a debate with another, with a Christian. And the Christian was taking the side of the Bible, which is that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of what is not seen. Richard Dawkins was like, how, does there, how is there evidence in faith? He would say he would agree with Voltaire that faith consists in believing when it is beyond the power of reason to believe. So how can you say that there's evidence in faith? To which the Christian apologist said, do you have faith in your wife? And he said, yes. He says, is there evidence? And without thinking, Richard Dawkins says, yes. Faith is not blind. It is based upon the person of Jesus Christ. It is based on relationship with God. All of our faith in life is based on relationship. I believe what you say based on the relationship I have with you. If I don't think you're trustworthy, you can tell me the sky is blue and I'm going to look outside just to make sure. But if I do trust you and somebody says, hey, you know that, you know that Rocky Olmstead guy? Man, he's a real bad dude. I'd be like, you must be talking about somebody else because I know Rocky and he's not. 
Other, other quotes for faith, Martin Luther King Jr. said, faith is taking the first step even when you do not see the whole staircase. I didn't realize that Martin Luther King Jr. had been at our local pizza ranch. That's a joke for if you've been over there. It's a, that first step is a doozy. Anyway, C.S. Lewis said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by seeing it, I see everything else. The C.S. Lewis quote is very good, but it's only the effects of faith. For us to understand truly what saving faith is, the faith that is necessary to please God and to save a sinner's sinful soul, today that's what we're looking at with Abram. Today I'm going to tell you about the one of the most important verses in the Bible. In fact, many pastors, many people of faith have said that verse 6 of chapter 15, it is the Mount Everest of the Old Testament. It's the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. If you don't get 15.6, you don't understand the rest of the Old Testament. You'll argue about land rights and things like that. But if you get verse 6, it is the highest point of the Old Testament. Abram believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. If you don't get this, you will look at the law of God and you'll assume, if I do enough right things, I will please God. But when you see chapter, verse 6 of chapter 15, you'll notice that this is before the law of God, before circumcision, even before the official covenant God had with Abram, Abram believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. In this chapter, we're not going over this today, is verse 17. R.C. Sproul, one of the greatest preachers of his generation, his book, The Holiness of God, is a must-read for every Christian. He says, verse 17, if he had only one verse of one book on a desert island or prison, if he was only allowed one verse, he would ask for verse 17. But for you to hear about that, you're going to have to come back next week. Because today is only verses 1 through 6, or else we'd be here, we'd be here a lot longer than uh, even what, uh, what Josh was joking around with the uh, worship practice. And I don't mean that facetiously. I mean, it's sort of, I guess, sort of an exaggeration. But I was plotting this out and I, get, I was measuring. It would be at least two hours for me to do the whole chapter. So you're welcome. I appreciate your patience. I feel like two hours might really strain it. So we just did verses one through six. This, um, the faithfulness of God is the bedrock originator and sustainer of our faith. We are in this series on the patriarchs. So like I've said other weeks, kind of like a TV show, last time on Patriarchs. Last time on Patriarchs, let's go all the way back to chapter 12. Chapter 12, we hear about the promise that God makes to Abraham to leave his kindred and to go to the land that God had promised for him, that he would make him a great nation. God speaks to Abram and tells him to leave his home and go to the land that he would show him. He would make him a great nation and promises to give him the land. In chapter 13, after the last of Abram's family departs from him, in verse 15, God promises him not just to make him a great nation. You might interpret that, okay, then you gather other people. Maybe it's not your own family, but you adopt people into your family. He says, no, from, he promises him offspring. Then, last week in chapter 14, Abram, we have the very first war that's recorded in the scriptures. And Abram wins a credible battle against a much larger force. So now in chapter 15, Abram, after giving away his portion of the plunder and a tenth of his own wealth, goes back to where he started 
And there's still that four-nation army, and you wonder, are they going to want revenge on Abram, having tweaked their nose a bit, bloodied their nose a bit? Are they going to come back? When the five nations, who are client nations of the four nations from the north, if you don't understand any of this, go back and listen to my last couple sermons. I don't want to take too long explaining it too much today. But you had these four nations who had aligned with each other and they came through the area and man, they destroyed what was in their path. An archaeologist who had been researching this, he's like, we only see the ruins of the cities that they destroyed. And Abram and 318 men, they raid them, take from them all the plunder and all the people that they had captured from Sodom, including Abram's nephew Lot. And What about those promises that God spoke over Abram during this entire time? We know, because we've read ahead, that it will be at least 15 years before Abram has Isaac. But as far as Abram knows, might as well be an eternity. We also know that in his lifetime, he will not own the promised land. He'll only own a small little portion to bury his dead. So as we enter into chapter 15, Abram is understandably anxious He's understandably anxious for a number of reasons. Fear of retaliation. He'd given away a tenth of his wealth. So what will he have from this point on? Will he continue to grow in this way or will he not? And more importantly, what about God's promises? He hasn't seen them yet. So what will he do? But this story isn't primarily about Abram. He is not the hero. Your story is not primarily about you. You're not the hero. You watch the news and you see all these things happen. You're filled with anxiety. How can anything positive ever come from these situations? It's not up to you. You're not the hero. God would be the hero. He is the hero. He is the only true hero in all of history and in every story. He is the mighty one. Verse 6 is the, is the first and paramount verse explaining salvation and justification through faith. So in these six verses, I want to talk to you about one, frustrated faith in a faithful God. And two, genuine faith in a genuine God. So number one, this is verses one through five. And my second point, so only two points today. Don't let that fool you. It's going to be a full-length sermon. Uh, (laughs) But uh, the first one's going to be over one through five, and the second one's only going to be over six. Verses 1 through 5, we see the frustration of Abram starting to bleed through. And that's what I call a frustrated faith and a faithful faithful God. I want us to acknowledge that there's different types of faith. So far, we have seen Abram reach out in faith. We have seen, but we have not seen saving, saving, soul-saving faith just yet in Abram. There's a faith that believes in a God. That faith doesn't save you because Demons believe that there is a God, that there's only one God, and it does not save them. There's a faith that trusts that everything will work out, but that does not save a person either. It's just a positive attitude. And what is sad is we have taken the lesser faith in Christianity and made it a primary faith, and we've missed out so much to do that. We just become moralists that just look on the bright side of your life type of a nonsense as opposed to the anchor for our souls. Abraham's faith, his faith is progressive. We haven't seen a saving faith yet, but we've seen the work of the Holy Spirit in his life. And in verse six, boom, 
That is the crescendo so far of the Old Testament because he has believed God and it is credited to him as righteousness. He has, his life so far has been marked by a partially following the order, the command of God to leave the Earl of Chaldeans, to leave his family, except he doesn't. He goes with his father to the outskirts of the promised land. When his father dies, he then hears the, the command of the Lord again, then goes into the promised land, except it's with his family, with his nephew Lot. Then he has a trip to Egypt and back in the war of the four kings. There's a faith that believes in God and there's a faith that believes God. And the difference is, is outstanding. Abram has had two promises from God. They're really one promise. One is that God would make him a great nation. The other one is that God would give him offspring, children. He has not seen either of these yet. And the heartbreakers may have sang it, but you know it's true. The waiting is the hardest part. Abram has been given two promises so far and he hasn't seen either. Time grinds our patience to dust. The King James, when translating the word patience, uses the word long-suffering. And whoever made that choice made a great decision. Because for me personally, oh my word, patience is long-suffering. If I'm in a rush and you're in front of me at the grocery store, you know I have a hard time with patience. I'm right on your heels. And I'm just, I'm, I'm making little noises. I try not to. And God, the Holy Spirit's been doing such a work in my life. My wife can tell you, I've grown in patience. Because naturally, I am not patient. It is long-suffering. There's a British sci-fi show called Doctor Who, and the, the main character, the doctor, says patience is for wimps. <laughs> the exact opposite is true. You have to have a lot of strength of character to endure patience. Especially when it's something you desire. Especially something that you want, that your heart is set on to wait. That is difficult to do. Long-suffering is a very good word. It grinds our patience to dust. But it's in patience that we learn reliance on God, that the stuff the Holy Spirit has been doing in our life starts to show. And in verse 1, we see, after these things, what are those things? The war of the, of the four kings, rescuing his nephew Lot, giving a tenth of his wealth over to Melchizedek, and after denying the blessings that the king of Sodom would give him. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Now, the word of the Lord comes to people in many different ways in the Old Testament. For some people, it's dreams. They have a dream, and the Lord speaks to them in a dream. Joseph, the, uh, um, the uh, foster father of Jesus, um, the husband of Mary, he has a dream where an angel appears to him. A vision's different than a dream, and a vision's different than a theophany. A theophany is the presence of God in the Old Testament through um, some means that does not fry the person seeing God. So nobody's truly seen God, but they saw a theophany of God. This is different from that. Abraham's about to have actually a theophany, just not right here. This is a vision. And a vision's different than a dream in that you are awake when you are seeing it. John the Revelator, he has a vision of Jesus Christ. He is seeing what God is showing him, but he is awake at the, at the time. The word of God, the word of the Lord come, um, the, after these things, the word of the Lord comes to Abram, came to Abram in a vision, and he says, fear not, Abram, fear not. Much like God would appear to the apostle John in the book of Revelation, God has met with Abram many times, 
and this time it's in a vision. And he tells him, what's the first words he tells him? Fear not. You know, depending on how you number and decide what's included in every phrase about not fearing, not being anxious, not worrying. There's around 365 times that phrase is repeated in the scripture, one for every day of the year. And every day of the year, the Lord is telling us, fear not. Michael de Monacu, he's French. I hope I pronounced his name right. He's a philosopher. He said, my life has been filled with terrible misfortune, most of which has never happened. You know, most studies... When it comes to fear, including one by Dr. Robert Lahai, said that around 80% of the things we worry about never happen. Some others, it's 40%. The things that we're so concerned about, some people have complexes over fears that are completely imaginary. It never happens. And of course, for the past, I don't know how long, maybe forever, I know since I've been alive, the media knows this, and that's why they do programs about who's stealing your kids. And you watch the program, they're like, no, buddy, ha, thanks for watching. Because they know that fear is a good trigger. You know, there used to be this term of, of sex sells, and then, the, and then media figured out fear sells better than sex. An immoral person may spend X amount of money on a prostitute, but a moral person will spend everything they have to keep their home safe when you tell them somebody's going to come at night and take, take away their stuff or kill them or whatever. But the Lord tells him, First words to him is fear not. Genesis means beginnings. It is a book of first. In verse one, it is the first time God says, fear not. Depending on how you count up those statements, there's around 365 of them in the Bible, one for every day. God tells Abraham not to fear because Abraham had reason to fear. He had just bloodied the nose of a giant, uh, the giant in his land. And I am sure... Um, and I'm sure you have reasons to fear too. But, and they may be very real or they be, may be very imagined, but fear does not help them at all. There's a Chinese proverb that says something like this. The warrior who does not fear dies once, but the warrior who fears dies a thousand times. Amen. God speaks to Abraham and his first words to him is, fear not. I am your shield and your great reward. Last week I told you about the the first great war. I told you the report of the archaeologists who said that they found evidence of that war by finding no evidence of these towns other than ruins. Towns that had been utterly destroyed. Abram isn't even a town. His people aren't even a town. They don't have walls. They're nomads. The other people, they had, they had walls to protect them. He has canvas tents. Not great defense. God tells him, I am your shield. This has been true of the people of God throughout, all, throughout time. Even when they are killed, they hold their head up high because they know the only thing happening is that they would see their reward sooner rather than later. Is it any surprise the Apostle Paul, when writing by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says that the part of the armor that is the faith, that the part of the armor that's the shield is the shield of faith. And here we have in this section, in verse 1, God says, I am your shield. And in verse 6, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. The prophet Daniel, in a foreign country, the king makes this stupid proclamation about not praying to any other God than him. And Daniel doesn't affect him at all. Of this, I said, it is though God had fashioned for Daniel a shield out of his faith. 
And that despite the circumstance, Daniel would not pray to the king. Faith is our shield. He is our shield. He is our great reward. It might be very nervous. You know, people who step out in faith when it comes to giving, whatever God might be laying on your heart to give, it's kind of a, it's, it's kind of a nervous thing because there is no guaranteed promise that God's going to bless you financially when you give. It's a crazy thing to say as a pastor, right? Because if you don't give, there's not much of a church. But it's true. And I don't want you to be under false guilt and I don't want you to be under false impression. God does bless us. Oh man, he blesses us so much. I don't, feel, I don't think I really need to make that point. But I want to say this. If you think you're going to give $100 today and by the end of the week you're going to get $1,000, you are probably not. I was in a church one time where a pastor promised that. And at the end of the week, a guy comes into the church. The pastor had said, give $100 today, and by the end of the week, you'll have 1000 And the guy comes into the church, and uh, he, goes to the, uh, he goes to the secretary, and he says, hey, I gave $100 on Sunday. It's Friday. I haven't gotten my 1000 I would like my $100 back. And the, the secretary said, no, you need to leave. He took out a gun, and she's like, here's your $100 back, sir. Abraham tithes to Melchizedek because Melchizedek is the, high, is the priest of the Lord and it is the right response to the blessings of God. But God tells him, don't worry about anything. I'm your protector and I'm your sustainer. And all the way back, all the way to the day, we still have a hard time with this. That he's my protector and he's my sustainer. You know how many churches, the pastors, they just won't talk about certain topics because they're like, I'll lose my church. Who's your shield? Others, you know, you, you know you'll, you'll lose money on the stock market and you start bawling like a little baby who lost their balloon. Who is your reward? The Lord comes to Abram and he tells him, I'm your shield, I'm your reward. So it's a bit off-putting when we get to verse two. But Abram said, Oh Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. Verse two is Abram's response. He is despondent. It is as if Abraham meant to say, Lord, you have prospered me um, with, with finances and with, with uh, cattle now, and now promise to give me even more and to protect me. But what good is it if I don't have a descendant to give it to? I want the son you promised to give me. Now, I don't believe Abraham was being ungrateful per se. I just think that when you are waiting on the promise, sometimes you can get a bit hurt. And so out of that hurt, you say things that you probably don't mean. What's encouraging for us is the openness and prayer Abram has with God. Sometimes we come to God in prayer and we think, okay, well, I don't know how to pray. I don't have the right kind of flowery words to say. God just wants us to come to him and to tell him exactly what's on our mind, whether good or bad. God will deal with it. If we just still feel it and we keep holding it back, see, this is what God wants us to do. He wants us to cast our cares on him for he cares for us, to take upon his yoke, to take upon his burden, as opposed to just being like, okay, I'm going to go to my friends. I'm going to go to the bottle. I'm going to go to food when I'm really troubled, as opposed to going to him and saying, I know this isn't right, but this is how I feel. That allows an opportunity for the Holy Spirit to start working because the God deals with us in genuineness not in a facade. One of my frustrations sometimes as a pastor is somebody comes to me with their facade on, with a mask on, and they'll tell me, I'll know what's going on in their life, but they're like, pastor, 
I'm just having a hard time, and they'll, they'll mention something they're really not having a hard time about. And then it's up to me sometime in the conversation to be like, so I happen to know that your wife is divorcing you. Can we talk about that? Can we talk about your kid being sick and in the hospital? Sometimes we have this barrier between us and the Lord. This is what's encouraging about Abraham, even though it sounds pretty whiny, is he's being very honest with the Lord about where he's at. Yeah, you gave me a great victory. You've blessed me. You've promised to protect me. But what does that mean if I don't have kids? That's such a different view, I know, than what we have. We tend to see in our culture children as a, um, some people call them parasites, which is really mean and wrong. In the Old Testament, it was a blessing from the Lord. You know what Abraham's saying here? It doesn't matter how much you bless me. If my, if my heir is Eleazar, then you're going to bless you're just, I'm just storing up goods for Eleazar as opposed to my own family. Now, right or wrong, that's how he feels. And that's what verse, verse 2 here I want to say something about the doubt that Abram expresses here because it's not a doubt that denies, it's a doubt that desires. Perhaps this is doubt, but it's not faithless doubt. There's a doubt that denies. It refuses the promises of God and it doesn't believe that God is able to or willing to or has the inclination of completing his promises, but that's not what Abram's doing here. If he felt that way, he wouldn't even ask about it. No, it's a, it's a doubt that desires the promises of God. That his heart is sick with the longing. But after verse 6, the longing of Abraham's heart will not be for offspring anymore, but for the Lord himself. And he will love God more than the idea of offspring. We have evidence for this because when he takes his son, his only legitimate son, Isaac, and he takes him up to a hill because God tells him, take your son, your only son, whom you love, take him to this hill and take his life. He doesn't hesitate because he fears the Lord. We're getting to six and I'm excited for six because six is the big change in Abram's life. But we're not there yet. And we can see that, right? We can see that in, 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 in I don't know how to put it other than whining, even though I have all the respect in the world for Abram. I think everybody's been there. So in verse 3, Abraham says, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my house will be my heir. So verse 4, the Lord then speaks to Abram again, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man, so he doesn't even say Eliezer, shall not be your heir. In verse 4, God comes back to Abram and gives him more specifics about the promise. So you might be wondering at this point in time, maybe everyone's wondering, when you say that you'll make me a nation, you'll give me offspring, are you talking in a kind of like metaphorical sense? God says his heir would not be Eleazar or some spiritual descendant, or at least not only a spiritual descendant, but it will be literally from his own body. Once again, I want to stress, I want to, stress to you that it'll be 15 more years before Isaac. Can you imagine waiting 15 years for anything? If I put a potato in the microwave and it's not done by 10 minutes, there's something wrong here. <laughs> Abram doesn't know this, and, but God is upping the promise. This son would come from Abram's own body too. Patience, when we are frustrated, builds and shows our dependence and reliance on God. Here's the long view of what we see in verse Four. It's in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 11 and 12. 
I don't know if I gave you guys that one or not. Chapter 6, verses 11 and 12. And we desire each of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. Verse 12. So that you may not be sluggish, but be imitators of those who through faith and patient Impatience inherited inherent the promise. That's the command from the New Testament. Here's the example from the Old Testament. That's easy to say. It's hard to live. But through patient endurance, we inherit the prom- we inherit the promise. And it's an active patience. Sometimes our patience is like, okay, I'm going to forget about it and whatever, it doesn't matter to me. But for Abram, it's always on his mind, the promises of God and how God would fulfill them. And after verse six, it becomes something even more than this because in Hebrews chapter 11, when it talks about the heroes of faith, it says that he was not desiring a city built by man, but built by God, whose author and finisher was the Lord. The son would come from Abram's own body. Patience is when we when even though we are frustrated, when we are frustrated, builds and shows our dependence and reliance on God. In verse five, and he brought him outside and said, look toward the heaven and the number of the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said, so shall your offspring be. Can you go to my title slide? I found this online. Somebody took Van Gogh's Starry Night and put Abram in there and I thought that was fantastic. Vincent Van Gogh may have painted the starry night. But thousands and thousands of years before that, God's like, come with me, Abram. Come with me. Come outside. We're really blessed living in Iowa. You realize this? If you live in the big inner city, you can't see the stars at night. Not well. You see maybe a flicker. But in Iowa, especially during the winter when it's super like negative 20 below, you see... (laughs) You see, like, everybody everybody has, like, a telescope that night because you see so clearly because all of the ice in the air makes you see so clearly and you can see the stars. So God brings Abraham out and he says, look at the stars and see. Can you number them? God's like, you can't. And you can't count how many descendants you're going to have. That's God's promise. And you know something? You and I are part of that promise. Galatians 3 7 says that we are all sons of Abraham through faith in Christ Jesus. God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. And the Apostle Paul talked about this promise. He said the seed of Abraham wouldn't even necessarily specifically be Isaac, but be one who comes through the lineage of Abraham, Jesus Christ. And in verse 16 of chapter 22 of the book of Revelation, Jesus describes himself as the root of David and the bright morning star. So I wonder when Abraham died and he went to be with his fathers, when he went to be with his heavenly father and God revealed to him what he was talking about, there's a star that night you didn't see. There's a star that would have eclipsed all other stars. It is my son and he is the bright morning star and he will be known as the child of Abram. I was thinking about this morning, and it overwhelmed me. Because I was thinking about the new Jerusalem. So there will come a time when God destroys the heavens and the earth. All stars, all of creation will fade away, will be destroyed in fire, and God will remake the heavens, will remake the earth, and remake the new Jerusalem. And what it tells us about the new Jerusalem is that we won't need the sun, when we won't need a lamp because God himself will be our light. 
And God here in verse 5 says, Abram, come out here, take a look at the stars. But there's one star he hasn't seen just yet. And then he'll come before God, his father, and he will see Jesus Christ, God the Son, the one who's spoken to him, the one who's promised him. And that is my fulfillment to you, Abram. I can't imagine how Abram must feel because right before he says, oh Lord, what will you give me? For I continue childless and the heir of my house is Eleazar. God's like, I will give you so much more than you can ever imagine. And the moment you came to faith in Jesus Christ, God said to Abram in heaven, promise kept. Promise kept. He said, you are childless, but you are a father of nations. So verses one through five, we see Abram's frustrated faith, but there's a faithful God. In verse two, we see genuine faith in a genuine God. When I got to verse 6, um, I thought about doing something kind of fun in the sermon. In fact, I, when you got to verse 6 where it says, Abram believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, I thought about saying, end of sermon, everybody go home. And I thought, you know, I, I was thinking about this. I was like, I'm not going to do that, by the way. We still have another half of the sermon to go. <laughs> Get a drink of water. Anyway, um, <laughs> I thought about doing that because I was like, you should go home and then when you go to sleep, at, when you, go, when you uh, eat lunch, Turn to the people you're eating lunch with and you say, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. How and why? When the server comes up and they're like, can I take your order? You say, you know, verse six of chapter 15 of Genesis says that Abraham believed God and somehow that was righteousness. How is that possible? When you put your kids to sleep tonight, especially those who are in children's church who aren't hearing me preach so they can't cheat. <laughs> Ask them. Abraham believed God and he was, and God saw him as righteous. How do you think that is? We know, we, we, like in every other aspect of our life, we know that that's not true. You can't just like believe something and then you're, you're that. For those of you who maybe been in a 12-step program, you know you need to work the 12 steps. You can't just skip to number 12 and be like, oh yeah, I agree with all this. I'm good. Give me the, give me the sobriety chip for 20 years. So this is something special, amazing, supernatural. We, if we step over this verse, we've missed so much. I thought about preaching this whole chapter, but I can't because I can't get past six. Six is that amazing. It is the Mount Everest of the Old Testament. As far as it concerns us, it might even be the Mount Everest of the entire scripture. Abram believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. How does belief alone without actions become righteousness? How can believing something result in righteousness? This is the high point of all of the Old Testament. Belief, faith. Earlier I asked, what is faith? Let me tell you what faith is not. I got to bring this up because we're a Pentecostal church and there's a lot of things said about faith that are not true. That are man glorifying and not God glorifying. Let me say this. Say it in a funny way, then I'll say it in a more serious way. Faith is not the force from Star Wars. It does not surround us and penetrate us, and the people with metachlorians in their blood can manipulate faith to do what they want. It's not what faith is. In fact, the um, pastor of the largest church, not in America, not of the Assemblies of God, but in the entire world, was a man named Pastor David Cho. He founded and pastored the largest church in the world over in South Korea. It is Assembly of God to boot. 
It is, uh, in 2007, they boasted nearly a million members. Put that into perspective. One church, a million members. He wrote a book called The Fourth Dimension. In the book, he, The Fourth Dimension, he says, is faith. And he talks about the uh, Buddhist monks and the things that he believed that they were doing that were supernatural. He said, you can't explain those by saying satanic power. Of course, I say to that, why not? But whatever. Especially when the devil's called the god of this world, how can you not? Uh, but he said, no, it's not. It's a force in and of itself that, that God uses himself. And I'm like, that is not faith. You're making a god out of faith instead of having faith in God. It's twisting the scriptures and it amounts to man honoring instead of God glorifying. If you have genuine faith in a false god, it is nothing. Amen. Genuine faith in a false god is nothing. It has no effect. And a person who performs signs and wonders, who has, a, who has a genuine faith in a false god, is doing it either through the power of Satan or through, char- or, or through trickery. Having a fake faith in the genuine God also is nothing. In hell, there will be a lot of people who went to church every day of their life. In hell, there will be people who said all the right things, but when they came to the judge of all the universe, he said, away from me, you worker of iniquity, I never knew you. But don't be mistaken. Those who have a genuine faith in a God who is not the genuine God in themselves or in anything else will also find themselves there. A genuine faith is nothing unless the object of that faith is the real genuine God. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He had a genuine faith in a genuine God. And it doesn't say he believed in God, that there was a God. No, he believed God. He believed the promises of God. He believed God. Here are four things that Abraham's faith was according to the scriptures. I take the list from Steve, Pastor Steve Lawson, although the rationale and stuff is my own. And once I tell you the list, you probably could do the same. Here's four things it was. It was personal. God doesn't have grandkids. God doesn't have grandkids. If you are here listening to this and you think, oh, you know something, when it comes to the end, I know I'm going to be good because my my parents are church-going people. You are mistaken. Lot couldn't believe for Abram. Sarai couldn't believe for Abram. Abram had to believe God himself. Abram believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. If you have faith, If your faith isn't personal, it doesn't exist. Also, Abram couldn't believe for Sarai. And a couple chapters later, and we'll get to this, the angel of the Lord comes to Abram and Sarai, and he tells them about the promise and that they'll have a child from both of them. And she laughs. And the angel hears her. And it's one of my favorite moments in the Old Testament because it's so awkward. Because he's like, why are you laughing? And she's like, I wasn't laughing. I heard you laughing. (laughs) Abram believed, but it, it would be much longer and before Abram, before Sarai believed. Believing the Lord is personal. It's not cooperative. It is decisive. As we've been leading up to this chapter, I've been teasing chapter 15, verse 6 this whole time because I wanted us to get it together to see, whoa, this is amazing. It's not, it's not mundane. It's amazing. We might think we see Abram's faith before this, but it's not a saving faith until verse 6 because Abram makes a decision. Before this, we saw the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of Abram, and we saw that through the actions of Abram. 
In your life, the Holy Spirit was working on you before you made the decision to know him. Some people confusing this with already knowing him. If you had no love for the Lord and you weren't following his commands, you didn't know him even though you were doing churchy type stuff. Even if every now and again you're like, okay, I'm going to step out in faith here. If you didn't have a confidence, you believed the Lord. It wasn't credited to you as righteousness. So Abram, before this time, I've, I've mentioned this as we've been going through this, about different moments where you saw the working of the Holy Spirit. And that was in your life as well. And you might say to me, well, I grew up in church, Pastor Jason. I don't remember a time where I didn't know the Lord. Well, there was a time you didn't know the Lord. And there was a time where you did believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. And the fact that you love the Lord today is proof of that. I liken it to it riding a bike. I don't know if everybody remembers the moment you learned to ride a bike. But if you can ride a bike, you learn to ride a bike. Because if you don't know how to ride a bike, you never learned to ride a bike, you can't ride a bike, right? So if you love the Lord today, there was a moment in your life where you made the decision to follow him. Like Abram, you believed the Lord and it was credited to you as righteousness. Here's the third thing Abram's faith was, and for this we see the rest of his life. It was wholehearted. For this, we take and consider the rest of Abram's life. Abram, after this, loves God and wants God so much more than the land or even than the son of promise that when God tells him to take the son, his only son whom he loved, up to a hill and to sacrifice him, Abram does it without hesitation. If we go all the way to Hebrews chapter 11, we see that Abram was desiring a city whose author and finisher was the Lord. Here's the fourth thing. It was necessary. Here's the fourth thing about Abram's faith. It was necessary. This isn't for advanced, mature people of faith. This is something we need to start moving away from. There's nothing you can do to be saved. It's a work of God. I'm terrified of the people who are living lives where they have no affection for the Lord. They, in thought, word, and deed, they sin and they don't care. But they're like, I prayed a prayer once. I prayed a prayer once, or the people in our life, I don't need to witness to them because I led them in the sinner's prayer. You don't find the sinner's prayer in the scriptures. You find they believed God and it was credited to them as righteousness. It's necessary. For us, it's in the Messiah that we do know who is Jesus Christ. For Abram, it was in the Lord he knew in ignorance. You know how people are saved in the Old Testament? The same way in the New Testament. They were not saved by the sacrifice of sheep and goats. For all the blood and sheep of goats will not even compare to the one to the one of the greatest commandments. They are saved through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, though they knew him in ignorance. He is the lamb that was slain before the foundations of the world. And when they, Abraham believed God, when he believed Yahweh, he was believing in the shed blood of Jesus Christ, though he knew it not. And it was credit to him as righteousness. It is necessary. And every person who comes to faith in Jesus Christ must believe God for it to be credited as righteousness. There are four times this verse is quoted in the New Testament. That's the reason why I make such a big deal of verse 6, because the New Testament makes a big deal of verse 6. I have in my notes here, Go over the verses and explain them if there's time, which there is not. So I'll just, I'll list them and you can put them in your notes and you can read them later. And as you read them, you see what a serious business this is to the New Testament writers. Galatians chapter three, verse six. 
Romans chapter 4, verse 2. Romans chapter 4, verse 22. And James chapter 2, verse 23. Once again, that is Galatians 3, 6. Romans chapter 4, verse 2. Chapter 4, verse 22. And James chapter 2, verse 23. The New Testament writers use this as shorthand for how do you get right with God? How do you become justified? How, when you pass this veil of tears, when you die, will you stand before God and he will accept you into his kingdom? Verse 6 of chapter 15 of Genesis. Abram believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. There are only two ways to be counted as righteous before God. To be right with God and not deserving of judgment and wrath, which we call hell. One is earning it for yourself. And that's easy. Just never do anything wrong in thought, word, and deed. Also, always do the right thing in every circumstance and never once fail in either one of these things, ever. Neither in ignorance or through volition of your own. Do that. You'll be good. It's the only one human in all of history has ever done this, and it's not you. The other way is to have that righteousness credited to you or imputed to you. Imputation is a very churchy word. Eyes are probably starting to close right now. It's okay. It's one we need to take back. What it means is the transfer of benefit or harm from one party to another. On the cross, we have double imputation. Because on the cross, my sin, your sin, every thought, word, and deed that was not honoring to God, that God hates was placed on Christ. And then God treated Jesus the way he should treat you. But then on the cross, for all who would believe, the righteousness of God, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, who is perfect in thought, word, and deed. There was no ignorance to hide behind. There was no act of disobedience that he ever committed was credited to you and me. So that when God sees you, he treats you the way he wants to treat Jesus Christ. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said that all of the church depends on this doctrine above all else. The Bible gives four illustrations for righteousness. Righteousness, we can look at that simply as doing the right thing. But there are four illustrations about about righteousness that the Bible gives. One is judicial, meaning that there is a judgment seat of God. There is an accuser who is Satan. There is you, the accused. And if you know Jesus Christ, you have a defendant who tells the judge, the fine has been paid, the penalty has been paid by myself. Amen, verse John. And Colossians chapter 2, verse 14 says, For God forgave, us all our, forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. When Christ was nailed to the cross, so was your sin. So was the guilt of your sin. Two is financial. Financial. In Matthew 18, Jesus gives a parable about a servant who owes his master an outrageous amount of money. He can't pay it. And so the master has every right to throw this man in jail forever. Except he forgives the debt. This is the financial metaphor of justification. The debt has been forgiven. It's been paid. Unfortunately, that same servant goes to another servant who owes him very little and will not forgive his debt. That's the financial metaphor that's in the scripture. The third metaphor that we see in the scripture, I'm like focused on the fourth, so I forgot about the third, is the clothing metaphor. 
The clothing metaphor, Isaiah chapter 1 verse 18 says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. It's an incredible picture, right? That God had made us, made Adam and Eve clean, spotless. But through sin, sin puts gunk onto us. And the person who comes to the wedding feast without the wedding clothes gets thrown out. I can't bring my wedding clothes, they're too dirty. So what does God do? He washes us. Here's the crazy, this is the great paradox of scripture, is that God washes us in blood to make us clean. I know, I know people are like, okay, that sounds like such a bloody religion. Well, it is a bloody religion. It's the blood of Christ. And it washes us whiter than snow, though we're like scarlet and makes us like wool. That's the third metaphor for justification, for, for righteousness we see in the scriptures, is that of clothing, that God cleanses us, washes our clothing in his blood to make us righteous before God. Here's the fourth one. It's in the word itself. The word itself in Hebrew is Sadiq. Sadiq is actually a commerce term. In the times of Jesus Christ, in the time before that, probably some places still today, who knows? Um, what you would pay with, you wouldn't have, for instance, you wouldn't have dollar bills. I don't know if I even have, I got, yeah, oh, no way. I got, I got money. All right, cool. Um, <laughs> They didn't, they didn't have dollar bills. You know what the money in America used to be? It used to be a note saying, hey, it's worth this much in gold from the treasury. It doesn't say that anymore. Now it's just, take our word for it. <laughs> so anyway, people would go to the market and they would have things to barter with, let's say gold and silver. And you'd go to the merchant and you'd say, okay, I need, I need a dozen eggs. And they're like, okay, well, by today's turn, that's probably like two pounds of silver, right? Um, <laughs> And what they would do is they would have a scale. And on one end of the scale, they would put two pounds. And then the other person would have to put on the other, other side of the scale two pounds of silver. And when they evened out, that was righteous. And the Old Testament says that dishonest scales are an abomination to the Lord. It's talking about people who would cheat somebody else because that's what they would do. They'd mess around with the scales or they'd put too much weight on this end. Dishonest scales, uneven scales are an abomination to the Lord. Sadiq means when the scales are balanced. You and I, on this, side of, on this side, all of our sins weigh it down incredibly. And we try to, in fact, most people think, most religions, actually, ever, there's two religions. There's true Christianity and there's everything else. Everything else says this. You balance the scales by your own works. By your own good intentions or whatever, you do enough good things and you'll balance out the scales. But God tells us in Isaiah that your good deeds are filthy rags before him. So the harder you try, the worse it gets because God sees you trying to do good. You have been helping somebody who's homeless for your own satisfaction. And God said that is more actually on the other side, not on this side. And everything that's not done in faith is sin. So every, all of our sins are on one side. What can balance out such scales? The shed blood of Jesus Christ balances out the scales. Abraham believed God and it was to him a balancing of the scales. The shed blood of Christ then was shed abroad in the life of Abram and he was justified before God. 
In John chapter 8, verse 52, Jesus says, Your father Abraham rejoiced, rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. How did he see it? Abram believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Worship team, would you come up at this time? This is the gospel in the Old Testament. No one knew who Jesus was, but they knew of the promise. And those who believed God, it would be credited to them as righteousness. But we know, we know who Jesus Christ is. We know the gospel. That while my sins are crimson, he has come to wash them away. Though I owed a debt I could not pay, he paid it in my, in my place if I believe him. Not believe he existed. Not believe in a set of beliefs. No, I believe him. I have relationship with him. Everything I have is, is tied up in him. And like Abram, I, I, I've taken the thing I love and I've sacrificed it to him because I truly fear him. This is the gospel that I am not righteous, but the righteous one has saved me. And if we do not preach this to ourselves, we become arrogant and we start thinking, I'm worthy. Paul, would you play that video I have? You've listened to me and you guys have been fantastic, but I thought maybe you'd listen to somebody else about this point right here. And he has a Scottish accent, so that's a plus. If you were to die tonight and, and, and you were getting entry into heaven, what would you say? If you answer that, and if I answer it in the first person, we've immediately gone wrong. Because I, because I believed, because I have faith, because I am this, because I am continuing. Loved ones, the only proper answer is in the third person, because he, because he. And think about the thief on the cross. And what an immense, I can't, I, I can't wait to find that fellow one day to ask him, how did that shake out for you? Because you were, you were, you were, you were cussing the guy out with your friend. You've never been in a Bible study. You never got baptized. You, never, you didn't know a thing about church membership. And, and yet, and yet you made it. You made it. How did you make it? That's what the angel must have said, you know, like, what are you doing here? Well, I don't know. What, what do you mean you don't know? Well, because like, I don't know. Well, you know, we, uh, did you, <laughs> excuse me, let me get my supervisor. They go get the supervisor, angel. So we have just a few questions for you. First of all. Are you are you are you are you clear on the doctrine of justification by faith? <laughs> the guy said, "I've never heard of it in my life." And and what about? Uh, let's just go to the doctrine of scripture immediately. This guy's just staring. And eventually, in frustration, he says, "On on what basis are you here?" And he said, "The man on the middle cross said, I can come.'" <laughs> now, now that's the. That is the only answer. Before the law was given, before circumcision was the sign of the covenant, before God even makes the covenant, even though he will make this covenant in this chapter, Abram believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Why are you here, Abram? Because God told me I can come. 
Why are you here? Because the man on the middle cross said you can come. So if you are here today and you do not know the Lord, fall upon the mercies of Jesus Christ. The man on the middle cross said you can come. For the rest, for all of us, fear not. You've got something coming up? Know that he is your shield. He is your provider. And the same grace that was sufficient for you in the beginning is sufficient for you now. And preach the gospel to yourself every single day. Take up your cross daily. It changes the way you look at the world. Because if I think I'm, I'm awesome, God is so blessed to have me and his family, there's such an attitude I might have that it's, it's just going to be not God-honoring. But if I have that attitude of, it's nothing about me, it's about him. God is not only just honored in this, the Holy Spirit works through me. Worship team, would you lead us in our final song? As we sing this final song, this is our moment to reflect on, on the preaching of the God's word. Maybe there's something that you are fearful about and you hear the word of God today saying, fear not. I am your shield. I am your great reward. Or maybe today your love has grown cold for the Lord. You know why it grows cold? Because you forget why you're in his kingdom. You need to preach the gospel to yourself. I'm only here because the man on the middle cross and I, I can come. Maybe today you don't know the Lord. If you died right now, do you know where you're going? Do you have a confidence in that? Then fall upon the mercies of Jesus Christ. Believe him, not just believe in him, believe him. That he is the son of the living God. He is the only savior. He is the only savior for sin. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Worship team, please lead us.